All right. Well, as we continue our worship in the Word this morning, can we begin in prayer? Father, we are so grateful to be able to come together, uh, to come at the Lord's table and worship you there, to worship you in giving, worship you in song, lifting our voices in praise. But now, Lord, as we transition to your word, we just pray that you prepare our hearts and minds for it. What we know not teach us, what we have not give us, and who we are not in Christ, we ask that you'd make us. We ask it all in the mighty name of Jesus. Amen. Uh, C.S. Lewis, he once said um, this, that forgiveness is a beautiful word until you have something to forgive. You know, when it comes to the subject of forgiveness and those who have hurt us or mistreated us, when you consider the desire of the flesh or the philosophy of the world, what the world would say is, is don't get mad, get even. But this morning, what I'd like to take some time to talk about is not what the world has to say, but what the Word of God has to say on the subject of forgiveness. I'd like to invite you to open your Bibles to Matthew chapter 18 with me. We're going to be in verses 21 to 35 together. I've entitled this morning's message, Learning to Forgive. And what we're going to be taking some time to talk about, my goal with you today, is to talk about three reasons we are instructed as believers to forgive. We're going to talk about the how and why we are instructed to forgive. You know, as we continue through our series, Family Matters, uh, forgiveness is what we're talking about today because it's such a relevant topic to our lives. Because if you haven't been faced with the need to forgive in your life, that time will eventually come. For some here this morning, there's that need to forgive because of a parent who may have abused you, a spouse who may have betrayed you or abandoned you, or a friend or even a fellow church member who had disappointed you. The truth of the matter is that when it comes to the hurts that are committed against us or the offenses that are committed against us, you and I may not be able to choose what kind of offenses come into our lives. But what we can do is choose what we do with them. You can either choose to hold on to those offenses, allowing them to grow into a tumor of bitterness that will destroy your peace of mind, destroy your life, and destroy your relationships. Or you can choose this morning to let those those offenses go. You can choose to forgive. We're going to take this morning just some time in our text to talk about three reasons we're given to forgive. You know, the text we're in this morning comes out of the context of Jesus's teaching about how to respond to uh, a fellow believer who's caught into sin. You know, when it comes to sin in the local church, the most loving thing we can do is not overlook the sin, but to confront the sin, to call the sinner to repentance, and the ultimate goal out of love is to restore them. And, and out of this teaching comes a question on the mind of Peter, and that's where we pick up in verse 21. Would you stand in honor of the reading of the word together? Then Peter came to him and said, Lord, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Up to seven times? Jesus said to him, I do not say to you up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. Therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And when he had began to, begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. 
But as he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had and that payment be made. The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me. I will pay you all. Then the master of that servant was moved with compassion, released him, and forgave him the debt. But that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owed him a hundred denarii. He laid hands on him and took him by the throat, saying, Pay me what you owe. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, Have patience with me, patience with me, I will pay you all. And he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. So when the, his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. Then his master, after he had called him, said to him, You wicked servant, I forgave you all the debt because you begged me. Should you not also have had compassion on your fellow servant, just as I have had pity on you? His master was angry and delivered him to the torturers until he should pay all that was due him. The word of the Lord, or oh, excuse me, verse 35. So my heavenly Father also will do to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. The word of the Lord, you all may be seated this morning in the presence of God. You know, as we take some time to walk through our text, we're going to talk about why we are instructed to forgive as believers. We're given three powerful reasons as we talk about the why and the how of forgiveness. The first thing we're going to see in verses 21 to 22 is we are to forgive because we are commanded. We are, we are to forgive because this is the command given to us by our Savior and Lord Jesus Christ to forgive as he has forgiven us. Now, in verse 22, we really see the content of the command, but I want to begin with verse 21, where we consider the occasion for the command. Why does Jesus give the command in the first place? Well, because of a question presented by Peter. Then Peter came to him. Well, what's going on here? As we have already said in the introduction, Jesus is teaching on how to respond when a fellow believer is caught in sin. And as he talks about this, a question comes up into the mind of Peter, and he comes up to Jesus, and he says, Lord, in light of that, how often shall my brother sin against me, and I forgive him? And he asks, up to seven times. And so the, this is the occasion for the question, and, and the question that he asks begins with him calling upon Jesus as Lord. Now, the term Lord is... Uh, the term in the Greek, kurios, it simply refers to the Lord Jesus with reverence and respect. But I'd like to suggest this morning, if ever you find yourself struggling with the need to forgive, or you're presented with the need to forgive, a great first step is to follow the example of Peter and call upon the name of the Lord. If you ever find yourself struggling with the how and why of forgiveness as a particular name comes to mind or a particular offense comes to mind, the first step when it comes to extending forgiveness to those who have expressed, who have offended you or have sinned against you is to begin first by calling upon the name of the Lord. So Peter begins and he says, Lord, and this is the question, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? Well, the reason he's asking the question 
is not only has he experienced the need to forgive, but so have others as well. And so he asks Jesus, how often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? But the reason he asks it is not only because he's been presented, to the, presented with the need to forgive as we are, but because he's been presented with the need to forgive again and again and again. And Peter, he knows that it's right to forgive But he thinks to himself, there's got to be a limit. At some point, if you're going to forgive someone who has sinned against you, hurt you in some particular way, at some point, you you can't be forgiving them over and over again. You're going to be a a doormat. How often shall my brother sin against me and I forgive him? And he says, up to seven times. Now, in that day and age, the rabbis taught, as they supported it with Scripture in the Old Testament, that the total number of times that you should forgive someone is three times. After three times, no more forgiveness. The fourth time they sin against you, no more. And so Peter, perhaps, is feeling a bit generous here as he asks Jesus this question. Not only has he doubled the number, he added one in order to make it a perfect number, seven. And he says, up to seven times, perhaps expecting Jesus to say, wow, Peter, you're quite a generous individual. There are some here this morning who have forgiven again and again and again, and you have come to your limit. And you have thought to yourself, as Peter does here, there's got to be a limit to the forgiveness that I extend to those who sin against me. And this is the answer Jesus gives. This is the command we're given. Jesus says, I do not say to you up to seven times. I say to you up to 70 times seven. For my math folks in the room, four, four, excuse me, 490 times you are to forgive. You know what Jesus is saying there? You are to forgive without limitation. When you forgive someone that often, you start losing count, and forgiveness is no longer the exception in your life. Forgiveness is the pattern. If someone sins against you again and again and again, and you've got to forgive them up to 490 times, there comes a moment where you just stop counting, and that is your nature because you forgive again and again and again. And you say, how is it possible for God to tell me when I consider the offenses and the hurts that have been committed against me? How can he say, forgive an unlimited amount? Because as we're going to see in our text, his grace, Grace is unlimited to you and me, and so is his forgiveness. Thank God that he doesn't limit his forgiveness for us up to seven times, but up to 70 times seven. And so as we begin in our text this morning, we're reminded the reason why we are to forgive, the reason we are motivated to forgive is because first and foremost, we are commanded to do just that. If I could give us just a few takeaways in light of the command that we were given, the first one is this, um, obey the command to forgive because Jesus is our king. We're gonna go into more of the motivations for why we should forgive, but I wanna just stay here for a moment and if there are no other reasons why we should forgive, the first one is because when you invite Jesus into your life, you're not just inviting him to be your savior, to forgive your sins, past, present, and future, and to enable you to live a godly life and produce the fruit of godly living, 
but you are also inviting him into your life to be your Lord, to be your king, the one who rules and reigns over all things. And because he commands it, should be enough for us to walk in obedience to it. You know, when you invite Jesus to be Lord of your life, what you're saying is, Lord, I want your rule and reign to come over my mind. I want your rule and reign to come over my heart, over my decisions, and over the relationships that I have as well. You know, if Jesus is a king, that means that he has a kingdom, and the kingdom refers to the realm over which he rules. The question I've got to ask us this morning, is he the king over your heart and over your life? Because if he is, when he tells us to do something, because we love him, we are to obey him. And so first and foremost, obey the command to forgive simply because he is your king. Secondly, obey the command to forgive even when it doesn't make sense to forgive. Why does Peter ask the question that he asks? Well, he believes forgiveness is necessary to a certain extent. And there are some forms of forgiveness that don't make sense. If this guy's going to sin against me up to seven times, I mean, there's got to be a limit. And so there's got to be a moment where you say this kind of forgiveness doesn't make sense. If you have been so sinned against in a particular way and so hurt in a particular way and God commands you to forgive, sometimes in your own, from your own human perspective, you say that just doesn't make sense. But what we're commanded to do is not to obey God when it makes sense. We're simply to obey God because he's God and he's got our best interests in mind. It reminds me of these two little boys who were in the back of a Sunday school class and they were arguing in the back and the teacher couldn't take it anymore, pulled them aside and brought them to the front of the class and asked one of the little boys, what's going on? And the boy said, well, as we were walking in, he slugged me in the arm real good. Well, the teacher thought to him, so this is a good opportunity to teach the whole class a lesson on forgiveness. And so he turned to the little boy who was slugged and said, well, uh, son, w- would you mind forgiving the one who slugged you? And the little boy said, yeah, I'll forgive him. But as he said, I'll forgive him, he took his fist and really punched him in the stomach. Teacher was a bit surprised, grabbed the little boy's arm and said, I didn't tell you to, to hit him. I told you to forgive him. The little boy protested. He said, I will forgive him, but I needed to get even with him <laughs> first. Forgiveness doesn't always make sense. What we'd like to do is, is, is don't get mad, get, get even. And then I can think about forgiving the other person. The reality is God commands us to forgive. So forgive because God is king. We're to obey the command to forgive even when it doesn't make sense. But thirdly, we are to obey the command to forgive with a childlike faith and a childlike dependence. You know, if you... Take a look at the context of Matthew chapter 18. It begins with Jesus being asked the question, who is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven by his disciples? Wouldn't you want to know? And Jesus, he actually calls a little boy, perhaps places him on his lap and and says, if you want to be greatest in the kingdom of heaven, you got to be like this child. Why? Because that child has a childlike faith, has a childlike dependence. And then he goes on to talk through these teachings and possibly he still has that child right there as he teaches on our responsibility to forgive. 
And what we're reminded here is sometimes it may not make sense to forgive the offenses that have been committed against you, but what we are called to do is to remember that we are but children of the living God, and even when we don't understand it, we should trust Him anyways. We have children, and there are some things we try to explain to them and tell them to do that they don't understand. Now, we can only explain to a certain point, like don't eat ice cream sandwiches for breakfast. It's not a good idea. Like, we're not going to let you do that. Don't stay up all night long, even though you think that's what's going to be best for you. If you've got a whole day ahead of you. And we can give a certain explanation, but I remember when our children were still young and we'd take them to the doctor's office, and what was best for them in the moment was that they might get a shot or the doctor might come and check up on them. And as they do, boy, those children are struggling. And it hurts you as a father to be able to hold your child down and they're looking at you with those big eyes and saying, aren't you supposed to protect me? And what you want to tell your child is, I am protecting you and I need you to trust me because what I'm doing is I'm helping you and I'm your father and I have your best interest in mind. When God commands us to forgive, even when it may not make sense, and we would rather get even with the person who has committed a sin against us, we've been called to trust God with a childlike faith and childlike dependence. Lord, this is what I want to do, but this is what I know I need to do. I'm going to walk in obedience to the command that you have given. And so first, the reason we are to forgive, forgive because we are commanded. Secondly, forgive because you and I have been forgiven. You and I have been forgiven. Jesus, having given the command in verse 22, continues by means of giving a parable that will illustrate his command. Now, Jesus didn't have to share a parable here. He could have said, as I have forgiven you, Uh, without limitation, so you should forgive others without limitation. But he gives them this parable in order to draw out the principles that he wants them to understand and to know. And he says, therefore, the kingdom of heaven is like a certain king who wanted to settle accounts with his servants. And so he begins to explain to to, to them a story. He says to them, there was a king and this king was going to collect debts. He was going to settle the accounts of those who were around him, his servants. And in verse 24, we find what he found. It says, And when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him who owed him 10,000 talents. Now, if you were to take a look at what a talent was back in the day, it was a large sum of money. If you want to consider what 10,000 talents were, it was a ton of money. I mean, it was so much money. Now, a talent is a certain weight. And so back then, a talent could be anywhere from 50 to 80 pounds. And so if we're thinking of a talent, it could be gold, it could be of silver. Let's say one talent of gold is 70 pounds. And so this week, I went and did the math. If you take a look at a pound of gold today, if I had the right reference, the market is about $23,000. You take one pound of gold and multiply it by 70, you learn that one talent is $1.6 million. You multiply that by 10,000, 10,000 talents is $16.1 billion. 
And so what we're being told here is this is a very large sum of money. It is, the amount is so large that this man could never repay it. He could never repay it in this life, and he could never repay it in the life to come. This man owes an incredible amount of money, and you think to yourself, how in the world does anyone get into that much debt? But this man did, and it's really going to paint a picture for us. In a moment, we're going to see that you and I owe a debt that we could never repay ourselves. And then the text goes on to say, and when he had begun to settle accounts, one was brought to him, owed him 10,000 talents, verse 25, but when he was not able to pay, his master commanded that he be sold with his wife and children and all that he had, and that payment be made. Okay, you can't pay it back? Then sell all your possessions. We'll sell you, your wife, and your children, and you're going to have to pay back what you can, and then I'll absorb the loss. It's not very good for the king. He's not going to get very much money out of it. This man doesn't have enough money, and he'll never have enough money in order to repay. And in desperation, verse 26 says, The servant therefore fell down before him, saying, Master, have patience with me, and I will pay you all. What a pathetic scene that is. You have a man who is desperate. He's about to be thrown and sold and punished for not paying back him, his wife, and his children. And he's begging for this man, so desperate that he makes a promise that he could never keep. If you have mercy on me, I will do everything I can to pay you back. Listen, this guy would never be able to pay the king back in this life or in the next life. What a pathetic thing that you see in that moment. The text goes on to say in verse 27, what did the master do? He says, then the master of that servant was moved with compassion. I always like to talk about the difference between sympathy and compassion. Sometimes they overlap in how we use the terms, but sympathy really refers to being moved by emotion. When someone loses a loved one, when someone's going through a hardship in their life, we send our condolences, we express our sympathy, we are moved by emotion, but compassion on the other hand is not just moved by emotion, it's moved to compassion, to, moved to action, excuse me. Not only do you feel sorry for someone, but you're going to do something about it, and what the man does being moved by compassion, it says he released him and forgave him the debt. Well, we now get a pretty good definition of forgiveness, Forgiveness is to release someone from the debt that they owe you. Forgiveness is to let go of the debt that someone has committed against you. And as we come to the end of this part of the parable, what we're going to see here is that this parable actually is an analogy that some principles can be drawn out. And the big principle, the big picture I want you to see is the reason we are to forgive is because we are forgiven. First, I want you to see that this king in our text certainly represents God. Not every detail represents God, but the big picture of it represents God. And what you need to see in this parable is not attaching all of the details, but to know that God is two things in light of this parable. He is just and he is compassionate. I want you to know, as a king who is just, God will one day settle the accounts he has with every man and woman who ever lives on this earth. The truth of the matter is, we are born into this world with a sin nature, uh, 
And we're reminded that we owe God a debt that you and I could never repay in this life or the life to come. And what a pathetic thing it is for us to come before the Lord and say, God, I know I'm a sinner. I know I'm deserving of punishment, but Lord, I'm going to work off my debt with good deeds. The Bible says our righteousness is like filthy rags. There is nothing good that we could ever do to erase the sin in our lives. Other people will say, you know, Lord, just be patient with me and I'll work off my debt in order and through religion and ritual. Get baptized. I'll join the membership of the church. But the reality is there's no amount of work that you or I could ever do that could pay off the debt that we owe before God. God is just and it's a reminder apart from Christ, he will settle his accounts between us. But not only is this king just as God is just, but this king is compassionate as God is compassionate. We're reminded Romans 3.23 says, all have sinned and fallen short of the glory of God. We owe a debt that we could never repay. But Romans 6.23 says, for the wages of sin is death, but the gift of God is everlasting life. God knows that you owe a debt and I owe a debt that we could never repay. And as we come to him in repentance and seek him to trust in Christ as our Savior and Lord, he's willing to forgive our debt because of Christ who came and paid it on that cross as he absorbs the loss in light of our sin. Don't miss this about God. Not only will he, hold a, he, not only will he settle his accounts with guilty sinners, but he also is compassionate, offering Jesus as a means of forgiveness. John 3.16 says, For God so loved the world that he gave his only begotten Son, that whoever should believe in him should not perish but have everlasting life. First thing I want you to see in our parable in this first scene is God is just and God is compassionate. Um, secondly, the servant represents those who have been forgiven. The servant represents those of us who have been forgiven. Uh, MacArthur once said, we're never more like God when we are forgiven. We are never more not like God when, than when we are unforgiving. We're reminded when we take a look at the debt that God paid on our behalf through Christ our Savior and Lord, the kind of God we worship and serve is a God who forgives us without limitation, who doesn't just forgive us up to seven times and no more, but up to 70 times seven, an unlimited amount. And we're reminded that we have been forgiven. And that motivates us to forgive others. How? I want to give you four reasons. Number one, forgiven people understand their own guilt. When you have been forgiven and you understand the amount of debt that you owe God, you recognize your guilt before God. Romans 3, 9 through 12 says, What then? Are we better than they? Not at all. For we have previously charged both Jews and Greeks that they are all under sin. As it is written, there is none righteous, no, not one. There is none who understands. There is none who seeks after God. They have all turned aside. They have together become unprofitable. There is none who does good. No, not one. And for forgiven people understand the guilt that they have so that they can extend forgiveness to those who have guilt as well. 
Out of the abundance of God's grace provided to us, we extend that grace and compassion to others as well. Secondly, forgiven people understand the need, their need for Jesus' intervention. If you are forgiven here this morning, you know that you are desperately in need of Christ. That there's no amount of good that you can do in order to buy your salvation or get yourself out of debt. There's no good that you can do to add to the perfect finished work of Christ on the cross. All that we can add is just our contribution of a filthy rag that's messing up his finished work. Thirdly, forgiven people understand God's amazing grace. If you have been forgiven, you know that God doesn't just give us grace in spoonfuls, but bucketfuls of grace. He's forgiven all sins, past, present, and future. And we don't just say his grace is good. We say it's amazing. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. I once was lost, but now I'm found, was blind, but now I and then fourthly, forgiven people understand the need and the obligation we have to forgive others. When you understand the amount of debt that you owed God and the amount of forgiveness he's provided you and me, how much more do we have an obligation to extend forgiveness to those who have sinned against us? So first, the king represents God the Father. Two, the servant represents those who have been forgiven. Thirdly, the kindness, the kind of forgiveness described is granted, not earned. You know, when the king forgave the debt, he knew that this servant could never repay. He knew that the servant could never give back all that he owed him. And so he granted forgiveness. He didn't demand that he earn the forgiveness. How much more when we extend forgiveness to others should it be granted and not earned? When it comes to forgiveness, that person may not ever say, I'm sorry. That person may not even be alive today because they've passed on to be able to say that they are sorry, but you can still forgive them. You can still let that Go. Now, I want to clarify this. Forgiveness is different than reconciliation. If you're going to forgive somebody, that's one thing. If you're going to be reconciled with someone, that's a whole other thing. Now, if you're going to forgive them, you're no longer holding that offense against them. You are letting that sin go and you're leaving it in the hands of God. That's forgiveness. And so you don't need that other person to say anything before you forgive them and let that offense go. But when it comes to reconciliation, if you are going to come back together, that what's needed there is repentance. If someone is going to say, forgive me, and you say, I will forgive you, and then you're going to be reconciled to that person, they've got to have a repentant heart. You've got to see a change of life, and you've got to see the, the fruit of change that happens in their life. If there is a wife who's being abused physically by her husband and they're separated for a time and those two are receiving some kind of biblical counseling along the way, that husband and wife in that time of separation, the desire is always that they can come back together, but they don't need to be reconciled or come back together until there is actual repentance in the heart of one of the other individuals. Until there is 
an actual change in the lifestyle being lived. And so there needs to be a difference that happens when it comes to reconciliation. When it comes to forgiveness, forgiveness is granted. It is not earned. And so first, in our text, we see we forgive because it's commanded. We forgive because we're forgiven. Lastly, this morning in our text, we forgive because of the freedom that it provides. Lewis Meads once observed, when we genuinely forgive, we set a prisoner free and then discover that the prisoner we set free is us. Let me continue it to the next part of the parable. After this man has been forgiven in verse 28, he's thinking about his debt, and so he begins to think about it. You know, somebody owes me a debt. One of my fellow servants owes me a debt. And so he's been forgiven this great debt for, by God, a, an amount that he could never repay. And he, he's thinking about it. You know, that guy, he owes me some money. And so verse 28 says, but that servant went out and found one of his fellow servants who owned him a hundred denarii. You think he would be walking away celebrating, rejoicing. I've been forgiven. And yet what's on his mind is the debt of his servant who owed him a hundred denarii. Denarii was a, a day's wage. You can take a look at different, um, different averages on how much that is. I mean, some commentaries will tell you it's about 16 cents for a day. So 100 days is, is, is uh, $16. I don't know. It's not as much as the amount that he, or he owed the other individual. But what I want you to know here is that this man was owed a real debt. It was. And he had the legal right to collect his debt. But while this man had the legal right, he didn't have the moral right. What God is inviting us to do in light of this text is to consider those who have sinned against us and have committed an offense against us. And he's not denying the reality that we have been hurt or that an offense has been committed against us. But he is saying to put it in proper perspective. And when you put in proper perspective the way that others have hurt you and the way that you have hurt God, it's a difference between billions of dollars and perhaps just hundreds of dollars. $16, if that is correct. So this morning, we're invited to put it into perspective. Text goes on to say what he did. He, he laid hands on him and took him by the throat saying, pay me what you owe. Well, that's what you'd like to do to those who sin against you or commit an offense against you? Yeah. When someone hits you on one cheek, you knock them in the jaw on the other, right? Isn't that what you want to do? What you want to do is grab them by the throat. What you want to do is seek revenge. And that's what this man does. He grabs him by the throat and he says, I demand that you give me the money. Verse 29, it's almost as if we've seen it before. So his fellow servant fell down at his feet and begged him, saying, have patience with me, and I will pay all. You would think it would come back in his memory. I remember I was in that same place. I would prostrate before the man in whom I owed a debt that I could never repay. This man owes a 100 days wages, and he's begging me, just give me, just give me some of patience, and I will pay back everything. Verse 30 says, and he would not, but went and threw him into prison till he should pay the debt. If you're listening to this parable for the first time, you should be shocked. Excuse me? 
This gentleman who has just been forgiven a debt that he could never repay goes, grabs somebody else and shakes him by the throat. And this guy asks for mercy, have patience with me. And he doesn't extend the same mercy that he has been extended. It shouldn't make sense. Verse 31, it shocked his fellow servants. So when his fellow servants saw what had been done, they were very grieved and came and told their master all that had been done. When you choose not to forgive those who have sinned against you, it should shock fellow believers. Because when you understand the amount of forgiveness we've been provided with Christ, it just makes sense that we extend that same forgiveness to others. Verse 32, then his master, after he had called him, said to him, you wicked servant. How does God feel towards us holding on to unforgiveness in our hearts. It's disobedience to the Lord. We are most like God when we extend forgiveness to others. We are least like God when we choose to hold on to unforgiveness in our hearts. He said, you wicked servants, I forgave you all that debt because you begged me. Verse 33, should you not also have had the compassion on your fellow servants just that I had pity on you? And then... And his master was angry, delivered him to the tortures until he should pay all that was due to him. Verse 35, so my heavenly father, this is the takeaway of the parable. We don't just attach all the details and say, what does this mean? What does this mean? What does this mean? Here's the major takeaway. So my heavenly father were also due to you if each of you from his heart does not forgive his brother his trespasses. What is Jesus saying there? Well, if you don't forgive, how can you be forgiven? Let me read some other texts, and then we'll clarify that. Ephesians 4.32 says, And be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving one another, even as God in Christ forgave you. Earlier in Matthew 6, verse 14, it says, Forgive, for if you forgive men their trespasses, your heavenly Father will also forgive you. But if you do not forgive men their trespasses, neither will your Father forgive you your trespasses. So what is Jesus saying? Is Jesus saying that you have to earn his forgiveness by forgiving others? No. Ephesians 2, 8 through 9 says, for by grace you have been saved through faith. It's not of yourselves, it's the gift of God, not of works, lest any man should boast. Is this saying then that you can lose your salvation? Well, Romans 8, 29 to 30 tells us that the work that he began, he's going to finish. Those whom he predestined, he called, whom he called, he justified, whom he justified, past tense, he has also glorified. So what is this saying? This is saying that if you are talking to somebody or come into a conversation with a fellow believer and you turn to them and you say, I will not forgive, I will not forgive, I will not forgive. That is not characteristic of a genuine believer who has received forgiveness of a debt that they could never repay. That is characteristic of one who hasn't fully understood the extent of their debt and the grace of God extended to them. The reason we are to forgive is not just, not because it makes sense, but because of God's compassionate heart for us that he extends to be worked in and through us. Yes, there are offenses that are beyond anything that we could ever imagine that you know of and that God knows of. And if it is truly something you believe that you can't do on your own, can I call on you to call upon the name of the Lord Jesus? 
to reflect on the forgiveness that he has provided you, to consider the debt that you could never repay, and in his generosity to you, may you share that generosity with others. This morning, what we're invited to do in light of this text is to forgive in order that we might experience the freedom that it provides. This morning, I'd like to give us just a few takeaways. The first is this. I'd like to invite us to count the cost of unforgiveness. You have a choice to make. You can choose to hold on to the offenses committed against you and allow them to grow and metastasize into a tumor of bitterness, or you can choose to let them go. Number one, when unforgiveness is present in our hearts, I want you to know this, our relationship with God suffers. Count the cost. When you are are keeping unforgiveness in your heart, your relationship with your heavenly Father suffers. And secondly, as you count the cost of unforgiveness, unforgiveness is a prison of emotional torment that you hold the key to. You know, when this king threw him into prison and he experienced torture. What we're talking about here are the consequences of an unforgiving heart. You create a prison that you have made for yourself and you are that prisoner. Frederick Buchner once said this, of the seven deadly sins, anger is possibly the most fun. To lick your wounds To smack your lips over grievances long past. To roll over your tongue the prospect of bitter confrontations still to come. To savor to the last toothsome morsel both the pain you are given and the pain you are given back. In many ways, it is a feast fit for a king. That chief drawback is that what you are wolfing down is yourself. The skeleton at the feast is you. As Lewis Smead said, and I'll repeat it again, when we genuinely forgive, we set the prisoner free and then we discover that prisoner is actually us. You know, when it comes to the prison of unforgiveness, uh, I was reading a book by Erwin Lutzer and he was sharing about a email from a prison volunteer who was walking through a particular prison. I want to read that to you. Walking down a metal catwalk, past prison cells of convicts is an incredible experience. It was in the spirit of adventure that I was followed by a blue uniformed guard as we approached the stairwell and we met the serpentine corridors and vacated courtyards. Each lower level became darker, dirtier, and more austere until we leveled off on a dingy walkway with the strongest aroma of stench I have ever smelled. This was the dungeon within the dungeon for detention for the most evil offenders. The cells were drab with bricks and windows, no cot, sink, or toilet. A hole in the floor dropped directly into the cesspool that was rumored to back up regularly into these cells. This was the home of those who were ill-suited to live with other residents. The officer was determined to hustle me out of this no-visitor area. The men were strangely hushed either seated on the floor or standing up with a drugged, glazed look in their eyes. No radio, no television, or even idle chatter. A thick cloud of oppression. Satan was there. One of these pathetic captives caught my attention. The prison volunteer continued in his email narrative. He was crouched like a creature on the cement floor. He wore only a grossly stained underwear, and his hair was standing out in a frightful, wild fashion. 
His eyes were bulging and hollow. His fingers were long and his matted beard barely hid his rotted teeth and infected mouth. I spoke, you need to accept Christ as your Savior and Lord. He didn't rouse. I cried out again, Jesus is your only salvation. It's time to repent and receive Jesus. He turned and looked me in the full face but gave no inclination of reply. Finally, the guard angrily took my arm to keep me moving. So I shouted behind me, why won't you do this? And he shouted back, I'm not ready to give it up all yet. And with that, he was out of sight. How stubborn at times is the human heart. How stubborn do you have to be in those circumstances to have nothing, to literally hit rock bottom and not cry out to the Lord Jesus Christ for forgiveness? And how desperate are we? And how stubborn might we be if we continue to hold on to unforgiveness in our heart instead of surrendering it to the Lord and committing it to him? Count the cost of unforgiveness. And secondly, learn to forgive. Let me give just practical ways for how to forgive. The first step of forgiveness is receiving forgiveness yourself. If you are struggling with forgiveness, the first thing to do is to be reminded of the kind of forgiveness offered you through Christ's sacrificial and substitutionary death on that cross. And when you fully embrace the forgiveness provided to you through Christ, which is unlimited, then and only then do you have the ability, especially through the power of the Holy Spirit, to forgive those who have sinned against you. If you are a follower of Christ and you say, I'm struggling, call upon the name of the Lord and ask him to motivate you to forgive because you have been forgiven. What we need is just more gospel. What we need is just to stand in awe and wonder at the goodness of Christ and what he has done on our behalf. Secondly, I'd encourage you to acknowledge that someone has wronged you. If you're going to forgive someone, you can't live in denial. You have to actually acknowledge that this person sinned against me and has committed an offense against me. Thirdly, this morning, I'd like to encourage us to calculate the debt. If someone has committed adultery against you, perhaps you would say, what do they deserve? You can think about it. Perhaps they deserve a divorce. If someone has neglected you, perhaps you would say, because, oh, excuse me, if someone's been negligent, maybe you would say they deserve to be sued. If some, if because of, of actions that have been committed against you, perhaps you would say they deserve to be prosecuted. I want you to, to take time to calculate what that person deserves for the debt that has been committed against you. And then thirdly this morning, release the offender of their obligation to God. What you're doing when you are forgiving that person is you are not denying the reality of the hurt that has been done to you. But what you are affirming is that I'm not going to be imprisoned to my unforgiveness any longer, and I'm going to leave it in God's hands as he is going to provide what's needed. And as you release it to the Lord and you make a decision to forgive that person, the next time their name comes up, the next time their offense comes up, record the date and the time when you forgave that person and ask God to help you recall, I already forgave them. I already released the offense. I am not going to be a prisoner of my own making when it comes to unforgiveness in my heart and in my life. 
This morning, what we are encouraged and reminded in light of our text is that while you may not be able to control the offenses that come into your life, you can control what you do with them. Will you surrender them to the Lord? Will you forgive the person who has committed an offense against you? Or will you hold on to them and allow that to ultimately grow into bitterness and destroy your peace of mind and your life? This morning, can we take some time to bow in prayer? I can imagine, as I've been talking about this subject, God has brought someone to your mind you need to forgive. Might be a parent, a mate, a friend, a family member. You'll never be free to do all that God has called you to be as a follower of his until you learn to let go. If God has brought that to mind and you're ready to let go, I want to invite you to pray this with me this morning. Lord, I know what this person did to me was wrong. I'd like you to name that person this morning. You know how much I've heard from this for months, for years, for my life. They deserve to pay for it, but I'm turning that debt over to you to collect, Lord. I'm letting go of that person and the offense because of the forgiveness given to me in Jesus Christ, my Savior and my Lord. If that name or offense ever comes to mind again, Lord, help me to recall this prayer and what I did this day when I forgave both that person and their offense because of the forgiveness you have granted me. Father, if there's someone here this morning who has never received the forgiveness of their sins, through their faith in Jesus as their Savior and Lord, but have the desire to do that this morning. I pray that they can also express this. Father, I recognize that I am a sinner and I am separated from you, a holy God. But I also know that's why Jesus came. That's why he came from heaven to earth. He died on a cross in order to take my place to forgive my sins and to grant me everlasting life. I declare this morning, Jesus is my Savior, the one who has forgiven all sins, past, present, and future. And Jesus is my Lord, the King over my life, the one I will follow all the days of my life into eternity. Father, thank you that we can forgive others because we have been forgiven. We pray all this in Jesus' name. Amen.